Thanks for tuning in to Charlottesville Soundboard. I'm your host, Mary Garner McGee. Soundboard airs every other Saturday at 6 a.m. on WTJU 91.1 FM and also comes to you as a podcast that belongs to the Virginia Audio Collective. This week, we hear from Cayman Hester, a Charlottesville High School student whose essay about the 12 African-American students who integrated Charlottesville City Schools was awarded in the Jefferson School's Liberation and Freedom Days essay contest. Just those little opinion changes were things that they passed on to their kids who had more changes and then it really facilitated the growth and it facilitated equality later on. The essay is titled Education and Community Activism, the Building of the 1926 Jefferson High School to 1958 Massive Resistance. But first, we catch up with Charlotte Renee Woods from Charlottesville Tomorrow about the third anniversary of the Summer of Hate and whether the police should respond to mental health 911 calls. Last week marked three years since the violent white supremacist rally downtown. Could you tell us a little bit about how community members marked those days this year? There was a push this year for an event that was called like Reclaim the Park, organized by various activist groups. And it was to reclaim this physical space that was the site of a violent rally a couple of summers ago. You know, August 2017, you have Unite the Right. August 2018, you've got the city basically on like lockdown fear mode. Um, August 2019, we had Unity Days events that were meant to just like celebrate unity and peace and also holding spaces in those parks so no one else could try and get a permit to hold anything like Unite the Right again. Then 2020 hits, we've got a pandemic. Everything is so different. And then there's this resurgence of, of BLM coming in stronger. And then it go, you know, then this this idea of let's reclaim this space. Let's have this nice like cookout, relax vibe and just hang out, have fun activities and just celebrate this space is now for the community again, the way a park should be. So I'm going to read a little bit from a flyer that they were handing out when you entered the park at this event. It says, Welcome to Reclaim the Park, August 12th, 2020. Hashtag Reclaim Seville. We are taking back the park to build a cop-free, Nazi-free space for our community to come together. We welcome your joy, your grief, your anger, and your creativity. We are here to honor the anti-racist resistance to white supremacy before during, and since August 11th and 12th, 2017. How did they protect that space that they were reclaiming without police presence? Well, usually throughout any kind of planned public protest demonstration event, there's always police cars blocking off roads. This time it was private residence cars blocking off roads. They sent out a press release through Charlottesville Anti-Racist Media on Carmel, which tends to do a lot of the comms for various activist groups in town, um, and really just asking, like, police, please don't show up. We can take care of ourselves today. Media, please stay back. We just really want this to be a special place for us today. And so all of the media outlets, we kept our distance and we all met at the um, steps of the library nearby where organizers of the events were able to come and speak to us, um, answer any questions. And could you tell us just a little bit more about the activities inside the park? You mentioned that it had kind of like a cookout vibe. There was like art, food. Um, it was kind of like this walk in, drop by, walk out if you want, hang out kind of vibe going on all day. There was also prayer at one point. I saw some yoga. There was some music. Yeah. 
It was very much like a festival in the park all day. So there have been a bunch of protests this summer for racial justice. Did you hear from activists about why they chose not to have a protest on August 11th or 12th? Activists did state that the reason they wanted to have that particular event was was to reclaim that space. It wasn't to walk and shout chants and be seen in that way. It was to be more private and be more for, for the group, by the groups in that space. And in your article, you mentioned that, you know, people were talking about how that was a day that was really traumatic for a lot of people. Yeah, that day for for people who were there that day, people who were born and raised in Charlottesville, maybe weren't in town that day, but are from here, like everyone experienced that trauma in some way. And the people who were on the front lines, the counter protesters at Unite the Right really, really experienced it. So in a lot of ways, Reclaim the Park was also really for those people too, to revisit this space that was so scary on that day and just say, hey, I'm, I'm in here. I'm having fun today. So since August 2017, and going way back before that, too, um, policing has been a big issue in this community. And last month, we talked about a new idea from Region 10 to create a mobile crisis unit that would respond to mental health 911 calls. You've been doing some follow-up reporting on that story. So first of all, can you remind us what a mobile crisis unit would be? Yeah, so one of the directors at Region 10, when we were talking, um, suggested that would be an idea that the community could explore. A mobile crisis unit, it would operate similarly to, I forget what the exact word for the, the acronym means, but CAHOOTS, which is a program in Eugene, Oregon, that's been operating for, I think, over a decade now, where trained clinicians respond to mental health related 911 calls. And it, you know, you really do that triaging with the dispatcher and figure out like, okay, well, this is a situation that probably doesn't need cops. Let's send medical professionals who are trained in this area who can deescalate the situation in a different way. And also um, if you're having a, a mental health crisis or a substance use moment and cops show up, that's gonna affect your psyche in a little different way. You're gonna be a little bit more nervous of, oh, well, here's a cop with in a uniform with, with weapons what's going to happen. Whereas if a medical professional approaches, it's already starting the playing field and the like a bit more calm, I guess. Would this mobile response unit replace the police for mental health calls or would they go alongside the police? When speaking with um, Lori Wood from Region 10, she said it could replace, but also still respond alongside in certain situations. Um, and then after... I did that report. Um, people were discussing it. Pop the, the topic popped up again in city council. It popped up again during the listening session on policing that happened recent, earlier this month. And, you know, it fostered a lot of community input and constructive conversation. And some people were saying, oh, well, if this happens, we Region Chen shouldn't spearhead it. And some people were saying, well, I, I generally at least like the idea because there was a woman who was saying she has um, an adult son who has mental health disorders and she would prefer like if something happened, she could have a mobile crisis unit come instead of police. Does the city plan to implement this sort of thing anytime soon? Not right now. Um, the general consensus from all of the city councilors is that they like the idea, but right now they they still want to make sure that they're listening to the community on various ideas and also just like the implementation, because a lot of local government, any form of government is it always moves very slow and methodical. And there's a lot of inputs um, because 
you know, if you're in an elected position, you're also the decisions you make impact a community in so many ways. So I know that um, Councillor Payne, Michael Payne, he was saying like, we would love to take this from idea to actual policy, um, but we would have to look into the costs, the how it would impact what, the different um, positions that are already in play right now. Um, there's a lot of logistics to work through. And then community members, one such member, uh, Myra Anderson, who has been a longtime mental health advocate in the area. She is suggesting a work group that is composed of mental health professionals, but also people who have received mental health care who can really speak to what works and what doesn't work from their own experience and kind of collaborate with mental health professionals on figuring out, well, what are the best things for our specific community and what can we report to council on about this? Can you talk a little bit more about Myra Anderson's concerns about Region 10 being involved in this mobile crisis unit? Yes. So Myra has been a, she's received services from Region 10 and she's also worked with and for Region 10. She was a peer support specialist. Um, She was on the board for a while. And over time, she began filing complaints on behalf of herself, but also she said that they were running, she was hearing a lot of the same similar complaints from other community members who didn't feel comfortable making a formal complaint. So she made some complaints about Region 10's like lack of racial awareness um, and the fact that she just felt like disrespected a few times and that um, it reported up through the Human Rights Commission and then the, it made it up to the Virginia Human Rights Commission, which found that Region 10 had been in violation and that they had stopped treatment with her for a while in retaliation for her making the complaints. So, you know, they got a slap on the wrist for that. And Region 10 has since undergone some training to be more like culturally aware But yeah, that's why Myra's concern is, and she was telling me, when we're talking about defunding and part of defunding the police also means like divesting funding from the police into community resources. She's afraid that if you just funnel that to say Region 10, for example, to to start a mobile crisis unit, she's saying they may not have worked out all their, their own systemic bias issues that are also tethered to law enforcement. So it would just be moving money from one thing with systemic issues to another thing with systemic issues. And there would still be a lot of the same blind spots. So that's why she's really pushing for have community members and a variety of mental health specialists really work on this together and make sure that if our community pursues a mobile crisis unit or any other type of form of response for crisis revolving around mental health, that it actually works and is catered to our community. Great. Thanks for sharing that reporting. Um, So switching gears, one last story. I'd like to talk about one of your climate pieces. You wrote about how Charlottesville is going to take part in a carbon capture training program. What is carbon capture? Carbon capturing is uh, one method to curb emissions because when CO2 gets emitted into the atmosphere, like plants absorb that. So it's really a fancy way of saying very strategic planting and planning. And with climate emissions goals set regionally and in the state and ongoing comprehensive plan developments and climate action plans in the works in the city and the county, planning where you put your trees and different types of plants is part of that. It's a very small, very specific part of that, but it it plays a role as well. And it ties to some other reporting I've done throughout the summer on heat island, urban heat islands, like having a tree canopy reduces the ground temperature in certain areas. So you don't have to run your HVAC as much. Knowing where to put plants, what types of plants go best that can capture some emissions, but also provide shade and cooling 
And then the training program that Charlottesville is going to be participating in with representatives from Albemarle County and University of Virginia um, is going to focus on urban and um, rural carbon capture because there's a lot of areas of, of Albemarle County that you can really have like forestry doing that work, but it's a bit trickier and different when you're looking at downtown Charlottesville. Um, and then some of that is tree maintenance and tree health, because if you have aging trees that aren't tended to, eventually you might have to rip those up and then that you're losing all their carbon capture potential and the shade they provide. How is tree cover distributed across the city? Charlottesville recently, they have a city green map that it's interactive and you can click on it online and you can look at not just like where the, where the parks are, where the trees are. Um, you can also see like where these sustainable buildings are, like the buildings that are built to be more energy efficient. You can see where the rain gardens are, um, where permeable pavement is, which reduces runoff, where the natural resources are, where the sustainable transportation is, waste management. It shows you where the protected trees are, the stream restorations and improvements, um, natural areas. It really shows you, it's a, it's a map that will be helpful um, when I was speaking with some sources for my carbon capture story. It'll be helpful when they're participating in this training program to see well, like where are we and where do we want to be. Yeah, and especially right now, as we've been seeing these crazy high temperatures in the 90s, like shade can make such a difference in how you're able to survive the summer, literally. Mm-hmm. And climate, uh, climate data shows that we have been having in, an increase of the number of hot days every summer um, due to climate change. So um, I think locally, nationally, there's been more of an urgent push to be like, okay, well, we need to take good care of our planet. And what ways can, what can we do at the local, state, and federal level um, to be good stewards of that? Charlotte Renee Woods is a reporter for Charlottesville Tomorrow. You're listening to Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the Virginia Audio Collective. Both are a service of the University of Virginia. However, opinions expressed on this show are not the positions of the university. WTJU is supported by the Southern Environmental Law Center. During these challenging times, the Southern Environmental Law Center is remaining strong and resolute in protecting the fundamental right to clean air and clean water and a healthy environment for all. In our next segment, we hear from Cayman Hester about massive resistance in Charlottesville and the students who brought it to an end. This interview was conducted and produced by our assistant producer, Sarah Howarth. I'm Cayman, and I'm a junior at CHS. And I spend a lot of time writing. I do a lot of writing. I do a lot of poetry, but I also really enjoy researching and writing about that, which is why I really enjoyed this thing that the Jefferson School put on. It was a contest that they put on and there were six different topics, all of them kind of locally focused and surrounded around African-American history. The prompt was to discuss how those moments impacted our lives today. So they had things like Liberation Day in 1865 and John Henry James and I chose Massive Resistance and the Charlottesville Twelve. What was your process for writing this essay? Like, what inspired you and how did the idea come to mind? Well, I had heard of the Charlottesville 12 before, but I had never really looked into it. And that kind of rang the most interesting to me. The one that I would want to look into because 
it's just not something that people really think about or talk about too much. And if you really look into it, it's kind of cool in terms of like human behavior, how their experiences were different based on their age, what it took to get there, how it hadn't really started with that. It started with Brown v. Board of Education in Kansas. I mean, something like that that happened so far away could impact something in Virginia that could impact today, years and years and years later. Could you tell me a little bit about the Charlottesville 12 and their impact on local schools in the community? So the Charlottesville 12 is a group of 12 students, nine who went to Venable and three who went to Lane High School. They were the first 12 students to integrate into Charlottesville City Schools. Their parents, the Venable kids, those nine groups of parents petitioned the Charlottesville City School Board to desegregate and to let their children go to Venable, which was an all-white school at the time. Eventually, that was passed and desegregation was mandated. And the Virginian governor just shut down all of the schools, all of the Charlottesville City schools, for a couple of months until finally in February of 1959, they opened up again and those 12 students began at their respective schools. And the way you make change for the future is starting with the younger generation. As opposed to trying to change minds, you want to mold opinions before they've ever really formed. So those nine kids, especially, who went to Venable are now in a school with a bunch of white children who really haven't been exposed to all too much racism and all too much bigotry, the things that their parents and older siblings and relatives may be very well acquainted with. So those kids may not have had the best experience, but they definitely had a more positive experience than the older kids and then their parents had had. So when those kids got older and went to Lane, then it was an entirely different experience for them. And the kids who started at Lane, though at first it may not have been a very positive experience, just by being there, they were teaching their classmates how it's possible and it's not a bad thing at all to live around people who are different than you. It provided them with that whole new perspective. And even if when they grew up, they didn't necessarily fight for desegregation or for equality, just those little opinion changes were things that they passed on to their kids who had more changes and then it really facilitated the growth and it facilitated equality later on. What do you think has changed the most and the least since the Charlottesville 12, just based on your own schooling experience and what you might have heard from others? I think what's changed the most is the openness and willingness for people to have conversations about these types of things. Because when things are uncomfortable, you know, it's kind of difficult to have a conversation, let alone go against the norm. So I think that was the beginning of kind of an encouragement for kids when something is wrong, for kids, for teenagers, for adults to go against what the norm is if the norm is wrong, if it promotes something hateful or bigoted. And I think that now we are a lot more likely and a lot more comfortable with having those uncomfortable conversations and with doing what other people might not be willing to do. I think what's changed the least is there still is that norm. I think that even if it's not as blatant, even if it's not as pronounced, it's still there. There's still, especially with all of the stuff that's coming to light now, that still exists. And it's really easy for a lot of people to just go along with it until either they're called out or until they have no choice anymore. And it stops being the mainstream opinion, the mainstream way of living. I think that there's always going to be something like that where something is wrong, but people don't really start to question it until other people have started to question it. I don't think that's ever really going to change, but I think that the way we handle it is what's changed, and I think that that's what's mattered. 
And why do you think it's a little easier for people today to fight against what they do deem to be unfair or just unfair legislation? What kind of mindset allows people to go against the majority like that or the law? I think that there have been so many examples in the past of things that, you know, for example, obviously we're not segregated now. That is a huge thing that only happened because people were willing to stand up to that. So I think that just having like tangible proof that by standing up, you're going to get something done is very, very encouraging. I also think that due to technology and just you can communicate with people so, so far away from you. You don't have to just stand up by yourself because you're the only person in your community. There can be people all over the country, all over the world who are willing to stand with you and who are going to stand with you. And people never really had that kind of access to one another all those years ago. Could you tell me a little bit more about the massive resistance? How long did it persist and what were its effects on particularly the Charlottesville community? The massive resistance was basically just this huge effort to prevent desegregation, and it was very prevalent. I mean, even in the community, people who weren't necessarily authority figures, students and parents, they would get scholarships for openly opposing integration, and they created this pupil placement board where kids were placed in districts, and, you know, it wasn't really based off districts, obviously. It was based off of whether you were white or black or whatever, and that's how you were placed, but it was under the cover of, oh, well, you're in this district, which means you go to this school. All of those official things were huge and very difficult to move against. They didn't even exist before people started really pursuing integration. They existed as retaliation for that. So that made that really difficult to overcome to the point, again, where the U.S. judge said segregation is unconstitutional and mandated desegregation in Charlottesville City Schools and then the Virginia governor just shut them down. I mean, there was not a very definitive limit to their power and how they could oppose desegregation and massive resistance was just this huge resistance against it. Eventually it fell through and the Charlottesville 12 ended up going to those schools, but it just made things so much harder for them that even when they had certain legal support, it wasn't really enough for a really long time. Why do you think the children being integrated at Venable and the children being integrated at Lane reported such different experiences? Well, when you're a little kid, it doesn't matter how strongly your parents believe something. If it involves bigotry or hatred, they don't want to share that with you because, I mean, they want to protect you. So all of those little kids in Lane, like seven, eight, nine years old, really didn't understand the full scope of why this was such a big deal, why it mattered so much that these kids were being integrated now. Some of them did report discrimination, but none of them really experienced any outright violence or cruelty because there is a difference between being a little bit uncomfortable with change and actually having an issue with what the change is. And I think that those little kids were more uncomfortable with the fact that there was change, period, that they had never really been in situations where they had people of color learning alongside them, but they did learn because they were so young, they learned a lot faster than, say, the older kids, the kids who went to Lane, the kids who knew that racism and bigotry was kind of the norm, something that they had been taught, and they weren't quite old enough to really know any logic or reason behind what their parents may think, whether it actually be logical or reasonable. But those excuses, they hadn't really learned those yet. So they're just going off of what everybody else thinks, what everybody else says. And if they could prove themselves, then they were going to do it. So they were very antagonistic towards the three kids who ended up going to Lane in the beginning. Even so, I mean, they still had to learn alongside them for years. And 
surprising that that did ultimately end up affecting them because all of those people ended up going off and being really successful. I think like one or two of them might still live in Charlottesville, but the rest of them moved away and are very successful now. I think that when they were in school, they did well. So there was just no real difference. And eventually, I think the older kids saw that too. I just think it took them longer because they actually knew about all of the hatred that was the whole reason that this was even necessary to begin with. And how do you think the education system could combat racism and bigotry in schools? I think not operating off perceived notions. There's especially a lot to do with like the Quest program in schools today where they kind of section kids off into different tracks. And I think that maybe waving those really strict lines saying, okay, you might not be in the place where you need to be today, but next year they should have another opportunity. And the next year they should have another opportunity. It shouldn't be preset tracks because the kid who might not get support at home live in a neighborhood which are dominated by minorities most of the time that kid might not ever end up on like an advanced class track because when they were younger they didn't really get support and they weren't ready for that but when they're older they might be and I just think that the schools could combat that by realizing that those communities aren't exclusively minorities which means that the issue isn't the color of your skin or anything it's just what your home life is like and I think that offering the same opportunities not just the same opportunities but offering support to achieve them would be really helpful. How do you think increased diversity and education in the school system could possibly affect people in the future with things like tolerance to things like voting practices? Well, if you grow up around a certain group of people versus if you don't, then you're going to understand them a lot better and you're going to hear what they have to say and you're going to advocate for them a lot more if they can't advocate for themselves because you've been around them your whole life. You have sympathy for them and they might be your friends. They might be part of your family. You're a lot more likely to understand the effects of your actions if you aren't very tolerant because you don't have experience with a certain group of people, you're not going to know how your actions affect them, how your words affect them. You're not going to understand that voting in a certain way might have a way bigger impact on them than it does for you. And I think that diversity is really important just because it adds another perspective that I think is really necessary, a more whole perspective about the world and about how your actions affect others, be it voting or just the way that you express yourself. I think that by adding that diversity, even if people might not make the same decisions, or they might make the same decisions that they would have made otherwise, but they're going to make a more informed decision. Well, that does it for this week's edition of Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. My name's Mary Garner McGee. Our assistant producers are Ariane Ballou and Sarah Howarth. Our theme song is Kyoja Beat by Marin Alasco and Jay Pun. This is Soundboard. Soundboard.